May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Pubov Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Doing our bit to preserve the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his. And anything else that comes to mind? I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the universal precept, within the constraints of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. (laughs) So today we have um, a guest, Alan Sanaki, Abbott of the Berkeley Zen Center. It's the second one with him. And um, I actually neglected, I think, uh, this, I think, would be podcast number 100 with our Zen-related guests. Uh, Although there were, I don't know, about 50 in the prior group, which I called Chats. So I'm thinking after 100, I will add the two together. So the number of the podcast gives you an idea of how many people we have uh, talked with. Like I said, this is the second part. It's not just the second podcast, but it's really the second part <laughs> of the last podcast. Uh, usually I do them if, if uh, it goes on uh like that, I put one one week and the second one the next week. Or I put them, you know, as close together as I can. And we did record this uh, in time to do that. However, I forgot about it. Uh, I mean, it's right there in the list of, you know, I keep a sort of queue up who's next. And I'm running about three months ahead. Yeah, I think this one was done... In April. This was done in April. I remember the last one. We talked about his book, uh, which is a cool book, Turning Words, Transformative Encounters with Buddhist Teachers. We talked about that book on the first one. Actually, I don't remember what we talked about, but I'm sure we did. (laughs) And uh, uh, on this one, uh, you know, he started telling what he'd done uh, in his life. And it's all very interesting. A lot of music, a lot of work with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, uh, a lot of writing, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting path. And uh, uh, we ended in 1976. So we picked that up with this one. So after we've had our pause to meditate... Let's give Alan Sanaka a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're in such a mood, hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, 
hit unpause, and we'll be here to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever, and give Alan Sanaka a call. Yeah. All right. Alan. Okay. How are you doing? Yeah, David. I'm doing fine. How are you? All right. All right. It's um, a lovely sprinkling morning here. I always enjoy rain. It's a, it was a beautiful spring evening, and at last we have some nice warm weather. Very pleasant. Ah, ah, good, good. Well, uh, now... Where did do you happen to remember where we left off uh, last week? Mm, <laughs> not exactly. I don't think we got far into my actually coming to Berkeley Zen Center. I don't think we exactly got to my coming there in the eighties, which is uh, when I you, arrived. You really. know what you said? I can remember what you said. Uh, you you had. Uh, you know, you had something else you had to do. And uh, you said, I said, well, let's just take it up next week. And you said, yeah, we only got to 1976. Right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so that's good. Uh, 1976, uh, I, uh, 76, I, I left New York, started playing in a, in a little band that was first in Ithaca and then moved to Boston. And I was there until about 1981, mostly on the road, playing bluegrass, old-time music, etc. And that was mainly what I was doing. Uh, and uh, then uh, and I met some people that I was playing music with who were from California and they wanted to come back to California and I'm still playing with them. Actually I played, uh, with my friend, Eric Thompson, uh, in Santa Cruz at a house concert last night. So wow. that was from, you know, that was from 1977. Do here we go in 2000, uh, 2022. Three, and, three, you know, so 2023, uh, so 23, right. So I moved to California and we had a, I was in a band called the Blue Flame String Band, which mm. was a wonderfully eclectic band. And it had all the usual kind of tensions that bands have. Uh, and at a certain point, I just felt like I didn't want to travel that, I didn't want to tour. Uh, and I was not happy with these psychological environment in the band and I decided to leave. Mm. And at that point, uh, I was in psychotherapy. I was living out here in Berkeley. Uh, and one day I approached my therapist, you know, and so at this point I am, uh, what, uh, near, I was about 35 years old. Uh, 
I went to my therapist and said, basically asked her, what am I doing on this planet? Uh. And, and she said, that's not a psychotherapeutic question. That's a spiritual question. Mm. And I said, I said, oh, that makes sense. Mm. And I started reading uh, Buddhist-oriented stuff again because that seed had been planted. And I think that a couple of books that were really important to me uh, were uh, The Snow Leopard yeah. by Peter Matheson and uh, The Empty Mirror by Van der Vettering. Yeah. And to make a long story short, I just had the feeling, well, if they can do this Zazen thing, I could do this. And so I decided to, and I, uh, but Berkeley Zen Center had moved. It wasn't on Dwight Way anymore. I didn't know where it was. So I found the number in the phone book and I called him up and, you know, I said, well, I, I sat there in, in 15 years ago and uh, I want to begin the practice again. What should I do? And the person on the other end of the phone said, find a blank wall and sit down and stare at it. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I thought, I can't believe this is what they're saying to an unknown person on the phone. This is my kind of place. <laughs> and so I went, I came, I came here. Um, and, uh, I just, you have this, sometimes you have this sensation that you're home, right? Yeah. Uh, you walk in a place and you know, you're home. I had that here at Berkeley Zen Center. I also had it um, uh, about five years later when I arrived in Japan and, and walked into Rinsawin at the middle of the night. Mm. Um, I, just, I just instantly felt at home. And I do. I really feel like that's a home for me. Mm. And, you know, I feel it with... Uh, Nagaloka, the place I go to in India, the place mm. I've been working. Uh, and, you know, it's like I really pay attention to what feels like home. You know, I totally trust that that feeling. And at the times, so this was in mid to late 84, and Mel, I think, was in Japan doing Dharma transmission. Uh, and so he wasn't here for the first while that I was practicing. And so I really encountered the Sangha and there were people that I looked up to and that I still look up to. Those are still here. And, uh, and then when he showed up, uh, it's like the last puzzle piece fell into place. The piece that was at the center of the mandala and, uh, that made tremendous sense to me as soon as I encountered him. Uh, and that was it. I was home. I had a teacher. And, you know, I had a very unusual, unusually traditional path of practice in the sense that uh, 
I've been living here now since 1985. Uh, I had, you know, my Mel was my primary teacher, uh, and he was my teacher for every ordination that I had for lay ordination, for priest ordination, for shuso, for transmission. Uh, and it's, a, it's very unusual to be with your teacher for nearly 40 years in this, in this culture. Oh, yeah. It's a really amazing, unusual opportunity. Um, and, you know, it's not without its difficulties, but, uh, but it's wonderful. And that's what I did. And, you know, along in there, I met Lori, who was a Zen student, and uh, she moved over here, and we had our family. We raised our family here, and, you know, it's just like we did everything with this sense of Berkeley Zen Center as as a place that uh, that was our home and still is. Mm-hmm. So that that's a that's an outline that doesn't go into any of the the details of the life and practice here. Mm-hmm. Well, feel free to go but, into any detail yeah. you want. Yeah. Well, you know, I hesitate to say this, but at some point I went to Tassajara. It was a kind of truncated practice period, a work period in, I think, the fall of 85, when they were uh, rebuilding the old baths yeah. before they were building the new baths. Uh, and <laughs> so the baths were kind of out of commission, and they did a one-month practice period that I went to. Uh, and it was, it was fantastic. And it was great because Mill kind of second seconded me to to the kitchen uh, because they needed help and so I got a lot of really good uh, kitchen training from uh, Fu was the Tenso and Brian Fikes was the Fukuten and uh, it was just a, it was a great experience and one day uh, on a five nine day we were having lunch in the dining room and Mel was talking to somebody, Sarah Grayson. Did you know her? Yeah. Um, and I was there at the table and he was saying, well, I wish I had somebody who could sort of be my right hand who took, took care of stuff. And he was talking to her and I just had this flash that I was that person. Mm. And uh, and then I questioned it internally. Uh, I said, "That's ridiculous. How do you know that you've you know you've hardly been here?" Uh, but I I felt very clear about that. And again, that was an intuitive moment. That was correct. Uh, and so you know gradually. I ended up with a whole variety of initially administrative 
responsibilities. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. I totally enjoyed throwing myself into the life of the Sangha. Mm. Uh, and I also, I enjoyed my time at Kasahara, and it was a couple years later that I, uh, that I went to Tassahara uh, for for a full practice period with Reb. That was in the, I guess that was just like, you know, January to April of 88. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was the first person from Berkeley Zen Center who had gone to Tassahara since the, I think since Suzuki Roshi's days. And I just always, I just always had the feeling that this is one practice that the Zen Center practice and the Berkeley Zen Center practice was all coming through Suzuki Roshi, and that these places were, uh, were what we had inherited, and I, I felt great about that. Uh, I felt I really enjoyed being in Tassahara. Um, and that's really where I met. I had met Lori before, but she was way senior to me. But at that point, she was Rev's assistant. And uh, we we hit it off. And uh, actually, I got a ride. After the practice period was over, I got a ride up to city center that that, that day. I went directly to city center so that I could see Lori and ask her out. <laughs> and I did. And it's like things went very quickly. Ah. Uh, ah. Uh, huh. Please continue. Along with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Along with that, simultaneously, uh, when I was at Tassahara for that practice period, I started having chest pains. Hmm. Uh, and this went, this kind of mysterious illness went undiagnosed for the whole practice period, which is really dumb. Yeah. Uh, and when I came up here, I, you know, then I really did some testing and found out that I had uh, a blocked artery. Wow. And uh, and so our relationship evolved in the course of testing, failing tests, hospitalization, and emergency in the hospital, uh, and, you know, Fear of death and all of this, uh, and I, you know, I felt like the universe was saying, "Here's your most cherished wish, and here's your deepest fear. You sort them out." Mm-hmm. And that's what I was given to work with. Did you get a stand? Yeah. 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 Um. And so I continued, uh, and I kind of rebuilt my health. Uh, and uh, 
again, as I, I was kind of fast tracked. Um, when I was at Tassajara, I met, met a whole crew of people who had recently been ordained by Reb. Mm. And they had been ordained, I think, just before this practice period. And they were my pals. Uh, I saw two of them last night uh, at the concert in Santa Cruz. I saw uh, Jaku and, and Shinshu. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. They came to the concert. And, you know, huh. we've been friends since 88, huh. since that practice period. Uh, but what I realized was that, you know, the, the people that I was really relating to, these were priests. And it was, again, this feeling like, well, I could do that. And that I wanted to do that, that I, just like one yearns for a home, I was yearning for, officially or spiritually, to be in the family of the Buddhists and ancestors. And I began to have conversations with Sojin about that. And, you know, his... His message to a lot of people were, when they approached him about being a priest, he said, just live like a priest and see how that is. And I did that. But as I said, things that happened fast. I had health crisis. Lori moved over here a few months later. We became engaged. Uh, we decided we were going to get married. Uh, I was ordained uh, in uh, I was ordained in the spring of eighty nine, and then uh, married in September of eighty nine, uh, and then by sometime in nineteen ninety, uh, Sylvie was born. Hmm. So and. Uh, so all this stuff unfolded really quickly. Uh, and as I've often said to people, I would not have ordained me. Uh, not with what all that I had going on in my life, but I don't think it was the wrong decision for him or for me. Mm. And so, you know, I found myself a new priest, a new father, and so on. Uh, and uh, that was how our life unfolded. So I had to work, which was a problem, to find work. I worked for a time at the the Buddhist bookstore on Bush Street. No, you mean on Octavia? Uh, on Octavia, on Octavia, yeah. Right, I mean Octavia uh, and Bush. My yeah, gosh, you worked yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, I did. Did you know Ogui? Well, I knew Reverend Ogui. Yeah, sure. Oh, but I what? met Reverend Ogui. I met him in Chicago. Uh huh. Oh, and that's, then, that's and great. Then I, I saw him in Chicago I, too. Yeah, and then uh, I had a very nice relationship when he was bishop here, which was later. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I worked there, 
And then I worked at Parallel Express. And those were both relatively unpleasant jobs. You know, I would come home and just feel, and I talked to her and said, you know, I'm working these jobs, I feel stupid. I'm not stupid. What's going on here? Mm. And uh, they just really didn't fit for me. Uh, and I'm not going to go into details why. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have another question. Brother, I have another question. Yeah, go ahead. Did you know Jerry Bollock? in the Buddhist bookstore. Sure. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Did you ever see Ananda over there? Well, I knew Ananda because um, at that point, also, we had something called the Buddhist Council of Northern California. And this is something that was really organized by Ananda and Ken Tanaka, and I was, I was quite involved in that. So I got to spend time with both of them. Uh huh. Who's Ken, Ken Tanaka? Ken Tanaka was, was, is a Jodo Shinshu priest, uh, who had a, I guess he had a, well, oh no, he was on the faculty of the Institute of Buddhist Studies. Um, he had a PhD in Buddhist studies from Stanford, totally great guy and a very, very good friend. Uh, and he moved to Japan about 20 years ago to teach there, but we're still in touch. Oh, um, and so that was a whole other little network that, uh, I really appreciated meeting people. Also, some of the other uh, Jodo Shinshu priests uh, and some other or monks from uh, a couple of the Theravada centers. Um, it was a great experience. So, um, I got a job working kind of as assistant to my younger brother at a place called Wilderness Travel. Um, mm. And that I really liked. That was fun. So like I didn't have any responsibility. I just did I did editorial work and things that were in my wheelhouse. Uh, and I got paid. And that was, that was fine. And that all went really well until um, the first Gulf War. So we're talking about early 91, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when the first Gulf War happened, nobody was traveling anywhere. And so about half of the staff got laid off. Mm. Uh, And I got laid off. And I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. And then... um, do you know Albert Cutchins? Yeah. But Albert, who was a friend from from that practice period at Sahara, told me, you know, there's a job opening at Buddhist Peace Fellowship that I think you would be good for. And I applied for that as basically director. Uh, 
and I got the job. And that hmm. was in the early winter, of, early winter of '91, and that was kind of the this other piece of the puzzle of my life that fell into place. You know, it was a, a perfect job for me. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, it happens at a time when, uh, well, during that time, Buddhist Association membership uh, grew substantially. And we had, you know, a growing presence in uh, the Buddhist world in, in this country. And it also connected me through some of the people who were on the board to the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And uh, that was also tremendously significant. I began, I guess, in the spring of 92, I went to my first International Network of Engaged Buddhist conference in Thailand. And uh, as I've, I've told many times, it happened that Sulak Sivraksa was in exile at that time. He was had been he he fled arrest in Tha- in Thailand. And who was he? Sulak Sivraksa is one of the really major figures of Asian engaged Buddhism or world engaged Buddhism, and he's been a mentor to me for more than 30 years. He is 90 now. He just turned 90 like two weeks ago. Uh, He's a writer. He's a Buddhist practitioner. He's an activist, uh, and he's a provocateur. Uh, And so he's several times he's gotten arrested for supposedly insulting the king. Don't want to do that in Thailand. Yeah, yeah. No, and he was very, very well known in Thailand. Uh, And so it turns out that when I went to Thailand for the first time, I left, and he was staying, when he was in exile, he stayed with us for a couple of months in our house. Uh, And so he, he... said goodbye to me at the door while I went off to his country. Uh, and that involvement has been really also active and steady for more than 30 years. Uh, and so I had this, you know, this job at Buddhist Peace Fellowship just opened so many doors of connection because in a certain way, one of my one of my great pleasures is in networking, in connecting people with other people that I think they might want to know. And uh, yeah, this you've just, helped this us. Just <laughs> yeah, this just opened up, you know, so many more potential connections, which have borne fruit. And I'm always, you know, I'm just doing that because I. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. You know, I hear about, I hear from somebody and I say, oh, you should know so-and-so. And I did that just this week. You know, somebody in my, uh, I'm teaching a class at Union Theological Seminary and I took a oh, 
you should know James Ford because he's a Unitarian Universalist minister and is in teacher. And uh, you should talk with him. So it just, that's what I naturally do. Um, and so that was our life for, I was pretty much steadily involved with BPF for about 15 years. Um, and in that, in those times, I also, then I went through various practice positions here and I was on the San Francisco Zen Center board. Uh, I was on Bernie Glassman's board. Uh, but I was, my home was here. I practiced, I did a practice period with Aiken Roshi in Hawaii. Um, I got connected and did Sashin with Shota Harada. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, that connection was sort of a double connection. It was like both, I feel, if my memories are right, both Yvonne and uh, Jan Bays, Chosen Bays, really encouraged me to connect with, with Harada Roshi. Hmm. And I did. And when I, I instantly connected with him, it was great. Hmm. Uh, and now, you know, my son is connected with him. Oh, no. I. I my, didn't know. My son, Alex Genbo, Genbo is his name. He lived at Sogeji for a year and a half. Wow. During the pandemic. Hmm. And, you know, he's still quite connected with Roshi and Chisan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, but he did that. He made that connection on his own. It didn't have anything to do with me. Hmm. So, you know, we have a very rich life. Mm. Yeah. And we move through all these positions, and uh, at a certain point, well, when shortly after Mayazumi Roshi died, which I think was in 95, yeah, that must have been right. Uh, Dojin invited Maylee Scott and myself to prepare for Dharma transmission. Because he had not, he hadn't transmitted anyone from Berkeley yet. And he was wanting to, uh, he wanted to secure succession here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we went through that process for, for a few years and uh, in 98 I was transmitted Maylee and I were transmitted at Tassahara and I guess around that time we were also appointed together we, we were co-tantos uh and uh, so we had that position. And then Mealy decided she really wanted to move to Arcata. Uh, this is a sangha she had been working with, and I, I think she felt probably correctly that uh, 
there was not going to be a place for her in Berkeley uh, to really teach the way she wanted to teach. And she was right. There wasn't, you know, and in a sense, there wasn't for me either, but I was younger than her and I was not as tuned into that. Um, and so she moved up to Arcata and then shortly she uh, was diagnosed with colon cancer and mm. went very quickly, went very quickly. Mm. So I was then the, the sole tonto and then I was the, the vice abbot. But there was no... I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I want to say here or what I don't, because what I do and don't want to go on the record. <laughs> but at any rate, um, what happened was that Sojin had confidentially named me as successor. But he didn't tell anybody, which is fine. And I didn't tell anybody. And then somehow... Well, how could you tell anybody you didn't know? No, I did know. Oh, you did know. He told me. Oh, I'm sorry. I got it. But all I can say is, and then it leaked out. And I will say, it didn't leak for me. Uh, and... That was challenging, you know, because people were, uh, people had all kinds of feelings about it. Mm. And nobody knew, nobody knew when this was going to happen. Uh, and he wasn't thinking straight about it. And all this took a couple of years, took a couple of years for the senior students to kind of work out our relationships. Uh, which we pretty much have, uh, you know, to where there wasn't a kind of, it wasn't backbiting. There wasn't, there wasn't negativity or too much competitiveness. Uh, but it took a lot of work on everybody's part. Uh, and then at a certain point, He made it known that he was planning to die with his boots on. <laughs> and uh, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really seemed that's to me like like he, he, he should have <laughs> passed... Uh, on the Abbot ship before he did, but um, you know, uh, I I didn't really feel critical. I just thought that's what I thought. Well, yeah, well, uh, but what I feel really great about is that I always felt that not not just me, but the Sangha had this wonderful capacity when he stepped back 
we step forward. Mm. You know, so for example, I mean, one of the real important elements, I think, of our growth as a Sangha was when he was cohabit of San Francisco. Because mm. he was gone, he was gone a lot. And um, it was fine. When he was gone, we learned to take responsibility. And people had space to learn to become teachers. Mm. Uh, so that wasn't a plan of his, but that was was a an artifact of events. So that was really good. And what I feel great about in the last, you know, over the last four years is that we weathered his illness and uh, gave him, really gave him space to, to do what he wanted and to teach as he wanted. And he did, you know, the last period of his life, uh, he was very alive. Yeah. You know, his teaching was really good, and he gave a very strong dose of it to people. Yeah. Uh, before, you know, a relatively swift decline at the end. Mm hmm And we got to do, you know, we got to do a stepping down ceremony with him, and... uh The all of the rituals around mountain mountain seed uh, were really well done by the community in the midst of of the pandemic, uh, and so we weathered we weathered the pandemic and grew as a community, uh, and we weathered his death, his loss. And the transition to a new abbot, uh, and kept kept practice alive, kept growing. In fact, growing as a sangha. There's no, we didn't experience sort of spiritual crisis or economic crisis. Uh, there's something really solid that that he had uh, just a very durable cloth that he had woven together into a community that has just uh, enabled us to make these transitions. And that's kind of where we've come to now. Hmm. Berkeley uh, Zen Center has always been my favorite Zen Center. I love being over there. Well, it's 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 pretty good. I and mean, we just had Buddha's birthday. It's just such a fantastic feeling, you know. Just yeah. a lot of people showed up, and it was just a joy and energy in how we did the ceremony. Uh, and I'm reminded that when we when we do things as a community, it's like, it's like that. Mm. And we're making it. You know, there's a transition. There's inevitable transition happening. Because a lot of the key people are aging out, 
or having illness, and there are new younger people who are coming that are figuring out how to, uh, you know, how to really fold into the practice. And I'm, I'm really committed to that. And I'm committed to being a more wide diversity of people practicing here. And that's happening also. Mm. Yeah. What do you mean by a wider diversity of people there? Well, to, I mean a couple of things. First of all, in a, in a, just in a demographic sense, uh, there are matters of age, there's matters of race and ethnicity, and just seeing different faces in the zendo. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you do that? How do you do more than just have a place and be open to whoever well, comes? You do that. You do that in a couple different ways, um, and this is all things that. Some of us, or the sangha as a whole, is thinking about. So, first of all, uh, we've been involved in a process called "Many Communities, One Sangha," which was a program that was developed by a couple of people in connection with East Bay Meditation Center uh, by uh, Musha Mikeda and Crystal Johnson and Rhonda McGee. Rhonda McGee is a, a Zen student who's a, a law professor in uh, uh, in the city. Uh, wonderful woman, African-American. Uh, and this is, it's a process for, first of all, uncovering subtle and not so subtle ways that we carry unconscious bias, uh, which makes it difficult to be it, it, it creates barriers to, inclus, to inclusion even though the intentions may be there. Mm-hmm. So we're involved, we've been involved in this nine month process meeting monthly uh, and uh, in both in small groups and in whole groups and just investigating these kind of these issues of equity and inclusion. So that's, that's a necessary step. That's a step of, you know, really affecting one's examining one's mind, affecting how one thinks about things, which of course is at the heart of our practice. Um, as we go on, I think that what we need to figure out how to do is to, uh, well, the more people of different, the more people who who look uh, one way or the other in the Zendo, and they can see each other, the more 
comfortable people they they going they're going to feel there so when there's if there's african american people there they're going to they're going to look around i do this you know it's like uh i found myself doing this uh 30 years ago uh, actually at an INAP conference uh within the first 2 days uh it was mostly asian uh with some westerners then within the first 2 days Everybody that was Jewish <laughs> figured out who else was Jewish and, uh. <laughs> and signified that we recognized each other. And, you know, I think that's true for, for other, other ethnic groups. Some are more and some are less visible. So, so we change the minds of the practitioners. We create a space where uh, people can see themselves and don't feel marginalized. And then the third, the hardest step, I think, is to affect the structures of the of the organization, which means who's in leadership positions, who's in teaching positions, and change that from being you know bluntly put a white space and that's the long term perspective mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we're just we're just working on this I'm, I'm not in any rush you know we're not panicked about this we're just doing it very quite methodically step by step mm-hmm Mm. And, you know, we've got 30 people doing this Many Communities, One Sangha program, and we're going to do a second year of it for a new cohort of people, and uh, it's going quite well. It's a deep process. And I will say, it's something I feel... I feel grateful that I'm in a in a place where I can help this happen. Yeah. You know what occurs to me is that the the uh, from the first when uh, well the well the first I'm thinking of mid sixties when Buddhism was really attracting a lot of people, there was just one type of Buddhism that had a, a real demographically mixed uh, uh, membership uh, that had uh, a lot of people of color and Asians and everything. And that's Soka Gakkai. Uh, Yes. uh, And they got that way by recruiting, by proselytizing, by, uh, and uh, anytime you hear a a black uh, uh, athlete our entertainer is a Buddhist. It's almost always Nichiren uh, Shoshu. So you know they've split in some ways. Yeah. I forget. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's because of recruiting. Uh, right. They went there and uh, they'd be out on the street, uh, on Market Street, asking people to come in, and they wanted everybody. Uh, the Zen Center has. Uh, you know, it was never that way. It, it was like like 
when you asked about it, they said, find a blank wall and stare at it. It was not a uh, place that was trying to attract people. It took people who found it, which would right. uh, tended to be intellectuals, college educated people who had read about it, not people who somebody come up to and said, hi, would you like to have a free dinner and meet some friends of mine and hear a talk? Yeah, well, I agree. And I don't think we're about to move in that direction. But I think that there's another, to me, my experience is there's another move that that one can make. Yeah. And um, which is to build connections uh, across the cultures, for example, to build connections with uh with churches yeah, to build connections across, across our culture. So one of the things uh, at a, uh, what was it? A, uh, an SCBA conference a couple of years ago, uh, Ayo Yatunde, uh, who's uh, uh, an African-American teacher, uh, suggested uh, to, to the membership of the ASCB, the SCBA at one of our talks said, you know, if you really want to know how people are living and thinking that are different than you, you know, why don't you go to a black church and go to Bible study? And I thought that was really interesting. So I did it. Hmm. I went to, uh, I did Bible study for about, uh, six months at a, an evangelical church, uh, near me in Berkeley. And it was fascinating. It was really good. I learned a lot. I was, I was welcomed. Uh, I think it was a bit of a conundrum to me that to them that I was a Buddhist, but, uh, (laughs) but they were very open. Yeah. They were very open. And I, I feel like, Making a connection uh, across these cultural and religious lines is really smart. I've gone to uh, Oakland to black churches just to hear the music. Well, yeah. Unbelievable. Daryl Coley and the gospel elites were just outstanding. I can't remember if I heard him in a church. I think I heard him in a church. And uh, there was another group that was really great. But the black churches, they had very sophisticated, you know, Stevie Wonder type, uh, beautiful chord changes and just very, uh, really great. And, of course, uh, so much American music was influenced by gospel uh, uh, from, you know, Elvis Presley to Ray Charles and uh, so much. Uh, just wonderful, but the the evolution of gospel, you know, that that I experienced in Oakland was just wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I hired a gospel group for uh, background singers on uh, something on Freeze Bleeds. Uh huh. Yeah, well, that's cool. Anyway, I I think there's different ways to go about this, you know. Uh, but uh. I don't think we're about to go onto the street and recruit. 
Right. Well, another thing that Soka Gakkai had, they had the same thing that um, uh, Hare Krishna had, uh, which was something simple to chant. And so you'd go to that meeting yeah. and eat with them, and people would be friendly and do what the Moonies called love bombing. Uh, right. And and then you'd sit there, and so Kai, you just have to go, and it was like a magical chant. So it was a really a visceral feeling thing. It wasn't, I mean, Zen just offered so little uh uh, you know, it, it needs a, um, a Kazan, huh? The guy who popularized yeah. it in Japan. Right, right. Before Kazan, it was uh, more of an elite thing. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's kind of where we're that's where we're at here. In yeah. These days. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Well, uh, more power to you there. What Thank about you. what yeah. what what about um, legal problems? America is such a legalistic uh, culture. It's, at Berkeley Zen Center, had problems with lawsuits for discrimination or stuff like that, or threats uh, that have uh, have been a problem. Knocking on wood, no. Good for you. <laughs> that can really throw a monkey wrench in the works. Yeah, yeah it's hard. It's yeah. hard. And um, but uh, no, we haven't. We haven't really had that problem. Yeah, yeah. We've had we've had other difficulties. We've had situations where we had to have, uh, where we felt people were abusive, where we. We had to ask some people to leave, or yeah. just inappropriate, but uh, but nothing that's that's escalated too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center. There was a guy who was very sad and kept trying. He couldn't really relate, but he kept trying, and finally he killed himself just a block away in his car when he couldn't go in. Nobody yeah. knows that, yeah, it, I guess. <laughs> it's forgotten. I hadn't heard that, but I've, you know, I know of other uh, other complexities around that. Right. Though. Right. The police. Uh, it's, it's the hard. police came t- to me. I I was work leader, and the police yeah. uh, came, or at some point anyway they came and showed me pictures and asked me about it I told them about him it was very sad well we did we had a murder oh across across the street uh, of a member really as she was getting as she was getting into her car yeah um, it's sort of a a you know very you know, somebody that we knew very well. Ah, uh, and uh, what year? This was probably about eight years ago. Oh, that recently. Zen Center's had several yeah. murders and yeah, yeah, I know, and shootings. Uh, uh, mm, yeah, this was very shocking. But you know, it's 
this is not the safest neighborhood. There have been, to my account, there have been three murders on this block. Mm. You know, uh, over the over the years, over the last twenty five or thirty years. Yeah. Uh, you know, not only this is the only one that involves a, a member. Oh, wow. You know, when I took over the Green Gulch Greengrocer like two weeks after it had opened on Page and Laguna, Caddy Corner from the Zinzuner City Center, I was running a grocery yeah. store where where uh, three people had been murdered. Yeah, that's a tough corner. <laughs> uh, Michael McClure called me the designated... Uh, uh, victim or something. I can't remember. Yeah, that's a hard job. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we're done for tonight. Yeah, well, that's really in- have, interesting. We can't end call, with me telling yeah. about uh, 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 we can't end on murder. You, you have to conclude no. with something okay. uh, else. <laughs> well, what I would conclude is that at Zen Center and at Berkeley Zen Center, the thing is that there are tragedies, there are losses, uh, there are, uh, you know, we've all had to, we've all been living through this terrible pandemic in which so many people died, so many people were. Uh, or harmed, but the practice continues. The practice is, uh, has not been, the practice has not been wounded. The practice yeah. is, is thriving. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing is to recognize the, the resilience of, of that practice and how lucky we are to have been brought brought by Suzuki Yoshi, by all of our uh, Japanese teachers, and also by all of our, all the Western teachers that we've had. Now, it's going on for quite a while. Yeah. And so we have losses, we have setbacks, uh, wounds, but but the practice uh, is is so robust. It's it's really great. Yeah, and we're we're very lucky to have that. Yeah. Now I I, I do want to ask something else. Uh, you're you're uh, you know Tassahara couldn't open its guest season uh, this summer because right? was that last summer? I'm sorry. Because no, this summer I think. Well, it's not a guest season. Well, what where are we? We're we're not we're not in. Well, we're in April. Is God? They're not they're doing it again. Sango, they're, doing, they're doing Sangha weeks. That's all. I yeah, uh, and and they couldn't get enough people to come there yes. to run the guest season the way they wanted. It was right. Uh, you know, they easily could have run it, but they wanted it in a way that left the practice intact. And uh, it just would have been too much. Uh, it, it seems have have uh, 
and it's not it's not it's it's sort of like a, a shift in the way people practice and live more than uh, Zen is dying out. It's like it's taking different forms and people are That's relating right. in different ways and they're not coming and staying uh, and staying and staying They're They're moving on to other things and I don't know, stuff like that. Uh, if, if there was a sociological uh, analysis of it, it could state it more clearly. Uh, have you noticed that over in uh, Berkeley? Well, yes. What I've noticed is that um, I'm trying to get my head around what are the different orientations towards practice that are emerging now uh, that are different from how it was, say, when you or I came to practice. And one of those things is that uh, one of those things is that it's the economic circumstances of young people are really different than when we kick off practice. That's true. There, yeah. There's so much there's so much more pressure. And yeah. so it's like you have to be you you would have to be all in. You know, and you'd have to uh you know, people are thinking about their their student debts. They're thinking about what kinds of money they might need and they're it's harder for people just to say well, I'm going to take off this year or this two years and uh, live in this circumstance. That's yeah. just really hard. I didn't hard think anything. I had no worry about the future at all. Uh, you know, I was sort of like with the hippie wave or something in the mid-60s. It never occurred yeah, to me. Yeah, I didn't think me. about it that much. Yeah. But I see, you know, I see what my son is doing. Uh, and he's really devoted to practice. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's challenging for him. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I have, I have faith in him and I have, I hope that we will work out a way so that people can really, uh, can really, enter practice in a, in a thoroughgoing way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I also think that one of the things that's happening, this is a whole other, this is a whole other discussion, but uh, I think that we're developing styles of leadership and teaching that are not necessarily strictly focused on a single personality. Yeah. In other words, Ain't it true? There's, more collect, there's more collective leadership. Yeah. Uh, and I don't, and I will say, I don't think, um, I don't think we know quite how that's going to unfold yet. Right. You know, I don't, I don't think all, all the ballots have been counted.
while I really support this form of leadership uh, and look to build uh, a sense of collectivity among among the teachers, so we don't know yet. It may be that the models of leadership that we had from Mel, Reb, and Suzuki Roshi, et cetera, uh, it may be that uh, that they were right, that that's, that's the model that we need to transmit Zen, but we don't know that yet. Yeah, uh, I'm not really worried about it. Uh, it'll take its, it like water flowing, you know, it'll take its own course. What, what work? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's really good you're there. I thank you for the connections you've given us in Asia. Sure. Uh, um, and, uh, hey, I hope there's a um, international Buddhist peace uh, conference here. <laughs> That'd be great. And maybe you'd come yeah. to it. Perhaps sooner or later here in Bali. Well, actually, yeah. There's supposed to be one. There's supposed to be one at... Uh, in Jakarta. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Jakarta. I thought, yeah, I'm, I just not, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go. I, it's not, I'm not sure what, what traveling I'm up for these days. Yeah, boy, I tell you, but, I'm there. <laughs> I'm not interested. But if you went to Jakarta, I might fly, I can fly to Jakarta pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah. So, uh, Listen, a pleasure speaking with you, and give my you love too. to Lori, uh, and okay. may, maybe we can uh, talk to her uh, sometime soon. I'm sure she'd be happy to, yeah. I'd love it if she would. It's it's uh, hard to get women. Women are uh, uh, a very uh, a high percentage of women do not want to do a podcast. I'll uh, mention that. I'll talk to yeah. yeah, so it makes it all look right. like it's all men, or mainly men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. You take all right. care. Take care, David. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. So thank you very much, Alan. Alan Sanaka, abbot of the Berkeley Zendo. This has been a Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm DC Poobob Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. And I noticed my voice is uh is it's pretty good for recording right now. You know why? Because I've got a cold. Yeah, to just keep it do all my wait for get a cold and do all my recording then. Uh anyway. So, uh, we're coming to you from Sleepy Senor with Doggy Bandita, guest Doggy Boombo. And her, tomorrow's her last day. Her owners are coming to pick her up after three months, I think. Last year was six months. And, uh, Clay and April and baby Isla, my son, his mate, their baby, are in Ubud. They went water rafting today. And he said, you're right. It's the best thing to do here. 
Yeah, it's really great. I call it senior citizen water rafting. It's not like a lot of the water rafting you, you might know of in other parts of the world. It's, um, you know, most of the time you could get, just any time you can get out and yeah, walk to shore or even if it's a d deep pool, it isn't very long. But they're, they wear you out. They're about two hours long. They're three different runs. And yeah, they wear you out. They're pretty cool. Uh, so anyway, all them and dear, lovely Katrinka, we're all wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening. Thank you.